here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, we have a really awesome bonus episode for you today. First up is the phenomenal Anne Patchett, not only dropping many truth bombs and incredible insights, but also saying that there are a whole bunch of writing rules that she's never heard of and also doesn't care about. Now we know you're probably sick of all the rules by now, so we know you're going to love this interview. Then none of us would ever get published if it weren't for readers. Without an audience for our work, we're pretty much just writing for ourselves, which is fine unless you want to get published. So it's important to know what readers want and what makes them recommend a book to everyone, leading to tons of sales and bestseller lists. So today we chat with two book influencers and podcasters 
Tina and Renee from Book Talk Etc. about six books in various genres that grabbed their attention from the first chapter and kept them turning pages. And finally, we talk with award-winning author Ramona Osabel about avoiding info dumps and trying out a really cool plotting method called Fortunately, Unfortunately. I think it'll really work for those of you who are not big plotters, but it's a great way to set up your story structure. Right, let's dive in. Today's guest is the author of novels, works of fiction, and children's books. She has been the recipient of numerous awards, including the Penn Faulkner, the Women's Prize in the UK, and the Book Sense Book of the Year. Her novel, The Dutch House, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Her work has been translated into more than 30 languages. Time magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. President Biden awarded her the National Humanities Medal in recognition of her contributions to American culture. She lives in Nashville, Tennessee, where she is the owner of Parnassus Books. It's an incredible, incredible honor to welcome Anne Patrick. And welcome to the shit no one tells you about writing. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. We are so excited to have you here. So before we dive in with my millions and millions of questions, just for our listeners, we are discussing Anne's latest novel called Tom Lake. Now, just a quick overview. In the spring of 2020, Lara's three daughters, Nell, Macy and Emily, returned to the family's orchard in northern Michigan. While picking cherries, they beg their mother to tell them the story of Peter Duke, a famous actor with whom she shared both a stage and a romance years before at a theatre company called Tom Lake. As Lara recalls the past, her daughters examine their own lives and relationship with their mother and are forced to reconsider the world and everything they thought they knew. Now, and on the show, we like to give emerging writers as much advice as possible, and we see emerging authors make a lot of the same mistakes, one of which is that when it comes to narratives that rely heavily on the past, they tend to do a lot of time jumps, they do too many flashbacks. So in general, we say to them, try and have dual timeline narratives where the present and the past are clearly delineated, use date and timestamps to make it clear where we are, and of course, because Anne is a master, she does not do that at all in Tom Lake. We have past and present in the same chapter, sometimes broken up by scene breaks, sometimes just bleeding into each other from one sentence to the next. And Anne, you make it look so incredibly easy. Can we talk about that? Sure. The problem with running two timelines in a novel is that usually there is one that the reader is going to be more interested in. And so you read one timeline with interest and one timeline with impatience because you are skimming, wanting to get back to the part of the story you're actually interested in reading. And so I found that by braiding the two timelines, and making them as interactive as possible, that was a better way, I thought, to hold the reader's interest. And also, it's, it's Laura telling a story to her daughters. So I like to think that the past is actually present. She's more or less telling them what's going on, and they are constantly interrupting her, pulling her out of the past, back to the future. And that's what I was trying to do. Do you know the children's book Interrupting Chicken? 
No, no. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's about a, a mother chicken who's trying to read a bedtime story to the little chicken and the little chicken just can't stop interrupting. And that's what I was thinking about. I love that because that definitely came through because, and it's not just the daughters interrupting, her husband sometimes interrupts and it, and it just shows, and I, there's somewhere in the book, and I know I underlined it where Laura does say how the past is so much interwoven with the present. And so that comes through incredibly, incredibly well. Can I ask your advice to emerging writers in terms of when it does come to backstory, what is your advice for when they should write it as exposition or telling or when they should really dramatize it as showing? Oh, there is no one answer on that. I I wish that there was some definitive, ah, this is the, the formula and the recipe. I, I do think that flashbacks, for the most part, are a crutch and I say that because, I mean, this is a book full of flashbacks, but always try to write a book without flashbacks, you know, and think about it in terms of the way life actually works. When you are living your life and you're telling the story, you may remember something, but you don't actually decamp into the past. And I do think that a lot of times flashbacks are just unnecessary. It's a it's about almost not trusting the reader. Everything I am saying does not apply to the book that I just wrote. But if you trust the reader to figure it out, a lot of times you can leave the flashbacks alone. Yeah, and there's a part in this where Laura actually says, I will try and get past the boring parts as quickly as possible. And it's and she even says that straight out to her kids and she says that to the reader. And there's some boring parts, but they're actually not boring. And, and she discusses them in exposition. But then the really good bits, the juicy bits, perhaps some of the things she's not telling her daughters, we get in scene, which is wonderful because we also understand the tension there between what her daughters are hearing and what we as the reader are being granted access to. Right. Because it's a story about storytelling and we never tell everybody the same story. If something happens, you tell it one way to your mother and one way to your sister and one way to your best friend. I mean, it's That's human nature. We constantly are reshaping and editing based on our audience, just speaking, living in our lives. And so that's what Laura's doing in the book. She's they know that she's had an affair with this guy when she was their age, but she's not going to tell them about the sex. And and actually, she tells the reader very little about it as well, but makes us feel like we're we're much closer. We're much closer to her than the daughters. Right. And there's, there's a sort of confessional nature to it, which draws the reader in even more. Now, in the beginning, so... Something we also say to our listeners is where you decide to begin a story needs to be really intentional. It's like circling a building and trying to find your way in. Are you going through the front door, the back door, the chimney, the second floor window, wherever you're going in, it needs to be really intentional. Now with this kind of story, which has this looking back vibe, you kind of expect to begin with Lara in the present day as her daughters are asking her about 
her past and asking her to tell her about it. But you don't begin there. Instead, we begin with Lara in the past when she's helping out with the auditions for the play Out Town. She, I'll get into more detail a little bit later about what Lara wants straight out the gate. But I think I know why you started with this beginning, but I just, I just wanted to check. Yes. Well, when I started writing this book, I the first chapter that I wrote was basically something that now happens at the very end of the book, which without getting into spoilers, was a scene that sets up why it is Laura is telling this story to her daughters now. And it, the book opens with one of her daughters coming into her bedroom late at night, waking her up because she's seen something on her phone that's very disturbing and she wakes her mother up to tell her that. And I worked on that first chapter for months and it was great. It was terrific. I was so pleased with it. But the book could not go forward from there because the information that I had revealed in the opening took all of the energy out of the story. So when I started writing the novel, I just couldn't get anywhere and I couldn't understand it because I thought, oh, this first scene is great, but it, it didn't work at the beginning. And so, so I thought, well, all right, what would the conversation be after that first chapter that I had originally wrote? And the daughters would say, start at the beginning, tell us, tell us the whole story, start at the beginning. And then Laura would say, oh, you know, I'm going to tell you the real beginning, not the beginning you're interested in, not the beginning with the guy but the beginning of the pathway that led me to the guy that led me to my whole life. And so when I finally thought, I'm going to try it this other way, I'm going to get rid of this first chapter or put it aside because I used it at the very end of the book. Then I started with that question. Well, where do we begin? We begin at the very beginning. And, and that was for Laura high school, because that was the first moment she encounters acting, the first moment she thinks about being an actress while she's registering people who have come to try out for the play Our Town. And once I shifted those things around, then the novel went forward and it could work. Yeah, I do the same with my books. I tend to start, although I start probably on chapter 10 and then I, I've got to come back. But I love hearing that you also, you know, begin with a false start perhaps and say, okay, there's a bit of a tension leak here. How am I going to fix that? Before before I get on to, to some other stuff I want to discuss, Anne, can you tell us, are you a plotter or a pantser or somewhere in between the two? I'm a plotter, definitely. And I write my books in a linear fashion. I, I really start at page one and go forward. And it's very rare for me to move things around. So the fact that this scene that I started with, which was where I always thought the book was going to start, didn't work, surprised me. And I think that probably it took me more time to realize my mistake because that usually is not my mistake. I have other mistakes. But yeah, I am somebody who really loves plot. I love a story. I love the idea of wanting the reader to get to the end of a chapter and think, oh, okay, you know what? I was going to stop at the end of the chapter, but now I really want to know what's going on. And I do know the whole plot of the story pretty much before I start. Isn't it amazing, though, how every book teaches you how to write it? I mean, you have written so many books and you like you say, you go, OK, these are the mistakes I make. This isn't one of them. And then this book 
just teaches you how to write it in a, in a totally different way to the others. Yeah. And, and again and again, you keep making mistakes because you keep trying things that are new. And when I wrote The Dutch House, which was a book I really messed up. I mean, more than anything I have ever written in my life, I made a huge mistake. And I had early on in that book, I wrote the whole thing and I had to throw it out and start over again, completely threw it out. And I think that part of that was The Dutch House and Tom Lake I was writing in first person and I hadn't written in first person for a very long time. I mean, the last time I wrote a first person book was 1994, so pretty much 30 years ago. And returning to first person and those limitations messed me up and really taught me a lot of things. It was a lot more challenging. I stopped writing in first person because I thought it was too easy. And I thought for me, not in general, but I was so much more interested in an omniscient third and everybody getting a point of view. So when I came back to first person, I think that maybe I was just being a little flip or something. I, I thought I knew how to do it, but I had to learn all over again. Yeah. And, and for our listeners, remember, we've said on the podcast so many times, choosing the point of view you're going to write that particular story in, again, needs to be so intentional. It can't be something you fall back to because that's what you feel comfortable with. Again, each story is going to require a very different point of view. And, you know, and I loved that you started with Lara in the high school because I, I thought perhaps you did that because you wanted to show that she was her own person long before she was a mother, having to relay her life story to her children. Whereas if you'd started with her answering one of her children, we straight out the gate just see her as a mother. And so much of the story is about not just being a mother, having a life long before you have children. Well, that's great. I mean, that's a wonderful way of thinking about it. And perhaps from now on, I will just co-opt that and tell people <laughs> that that was my idea, because I think that that's exactly correct. And I wish I had thought of it. But yeah, I didn't. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's that you, you kind of conveyed that to the reader. So perhaps it was there subconsciously. <laughs> right. So another piece of advice we like to give our listeners and and for our listeners, I love it when writers break these rules. I absolutely love it when they do it. But they, people of Anne's caliber make it look so incredibly easy. So when they break the rules and make it look easy, I like to go in and look under the hood and poke about and ask them how they made it look so easy. So on the podcast, we say, try and give your character something that they desperately want straight out the gate so that we understand the stakes so that we see them overcoming adversity as they strive to get this thing that they want, which will or will not bring them happiness. So that remains to be seen. But Anne, you didn't do that with Lara. She isn't even there to audition for the play. She's kind of bored and embarrassed looking at all of these adults who desperately want this. And even later when she gets noticed by Hollywood, she gets her chance she doesn't even really seem to want it. And you even encapsulate this in the scene in the present day when Laura is recounting a story to one of her daughters. So I'm just going to read it for our listeners. Nell sits down in the grass. I can't stand this anymore, she says. Emmeline leans over and puts her hand on her sister's head. What? The whole thing, Nell says, that someone just knocked on your door and gave you the part in this really great movie. And when the movie didn't come out and you still had work to do. You were still making money even if you weren't making art. I mean, I understand you had to go swimming first and that wasn't great, but did you even really want it? What had I wanted? To fly on a plane? 
to get out of New Hampshire, I sat down in the grass beside my daughter. I did, I guess. By the time the movie started shooting, I wanted it, but not in the same way you would have wanted it. I get that. I just want to get out of this orchard. I want to go on an audition. I want to act. It's like the universe conspired to make you an actress and the universe conspired to make me pick cherries. It is sentimental and useless to tell someone you would gladly give them your past because the past is non-transferable. And anyway, I would have only wanted to give her the good days. When seen through the eyes of Nell, it's hard not to think those good days were wasted on me and that she would have done a better job of it. And even in another sentence, she likens herself to a leaf that's been dropped in the water and just carried along by this this water. So if you don't begin with a character desperately wanting something and you don't begin with high stakes, how is it that you can begin with a there I was minding my own business opening, but still make it so, so compelling? <laughs> you know, I have never heard that piece of advice that you're supposed to open up with a character desperately wanting something. And honestly, I'm, I'm like scanning back over my books and thinking probably much more often I am writing about people who fall into a circumstance over which they have no real control and then they scramble to keep up. If it is you know, my first book, which is about a woman who gets pregnant and winds up at a home for unwed mothers or Bel Canto, where there's a hostage situation, you know, where nobody is choosing to be there in state of wonder. Somebody has to go to the Amazon to find someone else. She doesn't want to go. She doesn't have the skill. She's not equipped. So yeah, I think that consistently my characters are people who don't necessarily want what they're getting and they're just trying to figure out how to deal with it. It's not a decision that I make. It, it's just something that I'm always interested in, in myself, in my life. Throw a person in a lake and see if they can swim. I think about Louise Erdrich, who's writing I love and who I love in general, but so often her books begin with an unthinkable tragedy or act of violence. And then the rest of the book is people recovering from it or trying to solve what happened and how their lives are changed by it. So there are all sorts of different ways of going in, I think. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I mean, with that, that's a very clear, inciting incident. And I think that's what we're trying to say to writers. Have have a strong, inciting incident that answers the sort of why now, why today question in terms of why is the story starting now as opposed to a month ago or two months in the future, etc., and go from there. But again, and, you know, your novels are so literary, which means they're not as dependent on plot devices because they are huge examinations of character. Um, and so I think, you know, our advice really speaks more to genre authors in terms of giving the character something they desperately want and then having them chase it from there. But something that you do incredibly well as well, which is something we talk about, is causality. You know, when I'm looking at manuscripts from emerging authors, too often we have X happens independently, Y happens completely independently, Z happens and none of them are related. And Anne even writes about the causality in one scene, which I'd like to read to you. 
So it goes, Emily lifts up a branch and peers beneath it, trying to decide if it needs to be tied. I'm starting to figure something out here, she says, and all of us think she's talking about the tree. Everything leads to the next thing. Macy stops to look at her sister. That's called narrative. I guess they don't teach you that in school. I understand narrative, idiot, but when you see it all broken down this way, step by step, I don't know, it's different. Emily looks at me. Your grandmother asks you to register people for a play and you wind up in the play which gives you the nerve to try out for the same play in college which means that Ripley gives you a part in the movie but then the movie doesn't come out so you wind up in New York to try out for the play again but you don't get the part, Macy says. And so you go to Michigan, Nell says, which is how you get to us. Yeah, <laughs> but here, here's the thing about that scene and about writing Try to write the way life actually works. Try to write the way your life actually works out. And I find so much causality in my life. For example, yesterday, one of the I own a bookstore, Parnassus in Nashville, and one of the women who works at the bookstore was sick. She's been sick a lot, really often. And she's gone to all of these doctors and it's not worked out. And I'm really worried about her. I hadn't seen her for maybe a week because she's been out. She came in for a few hours yesterday. It's Sunday, right? It's Sunday. And I talked to her about her health for a while. Then I have a date to go and fish tadpoles out of a fountain that I know where the fountain is. And it's full of slime and green water but there are tadpoles in this fountain and they then drain it and scrub it and bleach it and all the tadpoles are killed and all the frogs in Tennessee are dying. So I I make a date with a friend of mine who's a naturalist and we're going to go save tadpoles. And, And then at the last minute, she comes down with a stomach bug. I call another friend. I said, let's go save these tadpoles and we'll take them over to Margaret's house for her because Margaret has a pond where she's keeping the tadpoles safe. So Judy, I go to pick up my friend Judy with the jars and the strainers, but Judy's husband is home and he's a gastroenterologist. So I talked to her husband about my sick friend and he says, yes, I, I can I can move some things around and I can see her. This is huge. This is going to be a real breakthrough for my sick friend. Then we go and we get the tadpoles. We save the tadpoles. We take them to Margaret's house. And then I come home and I have my husband, who's also a doctor, call my friend at work to talk to her about this whole thing. My husband's been having terrible problems with his cell phone, but my friend at work is married to a guy who is an IT person. He answers the phone. He can help my husband with his cell phone. That's the way life works, right? (laughs) All of those crazy things are connected. And in, in a period of two hours, I've helped my friend at work because I've connected her with another person. I've, I've saved, I don't know, maybe 25 tadpoles. I'm going to go back tonight and get some more. And, and my husband's going to get his phone fixed. All of those things are connected in a real life human way. The problem with fiction is that we have different expectations for our fictional characters than we do for ourselves and real human life. I was talking to a, a young woman last week who was interviewing me, and she told me she was 24. She was the age of Maisie in the book. And she said, you know, in this book, you have really big topics. You have climate change, and you have racism, and you have 
There was a third one and I'm blanking on it, but I think it's the misogyny because that's something I wanted to chat to you okay, about as well. Yeah. Was, misogyny is in it, but there was, there was actually, there was another one that was really important. Anyway, I'll, it will come to me. And she said, all of these things that you're dealing with are in the background. Um, oh, I know what it was. It was choice. It was a woman's right to choose. She said, all of these things are in your book, but they're all in the background. And I don't understand why. And I said, because in life, all of those things are in the background. I mean, they're the huge, important things. Climate change, choice, racism, misogyny. Those are not the things that we think about all day, every day, unless we're in a novel. In, a, in real life, you have to make dinner and you have to clean up and you have to listen to people and interact with people and you have to go to work and get these things done and you care about these other things and they come up in your day, but they are not the fabric of the day. If the fabric of the day was climate change, which it will be sooner or later, we would be doing something about it. But in why can't we have our books be more like our lives? Yeah, yeah. I agree 100%. And what I love what you did here as well is that you had COVID in the background of the story as well. Yes, but, that was the other one. That was yes, the other one, pandemic. <laughs> yes, the, the yeah. pandemic kind of feels like the background of the story. You never even call it COVID. And it's like the family, the girls are home, university's closed, everything's closed. They don't have seasonal workers. The news is playing in the background and everyone's feeling quite fraught. You don't even call it COVID. And yet it's this backdrop and you show how perfectly how everything's halted. And yet this family keeps on because they have to pick the cherries because that's real life. Yes. I mean, and that, that was the pandemic. I can't believe that that was the one that I forgot, but sure. I mean, we were incredibly distressed about the pandemic, but you know, you've still got to make dinner and, and, and you're home. So your world is actually becoming smaller. And the next thing you know, you're playing Scrabble in the evenings and you're not talking about it all the time, talking about it some, but you can't sustain that. You, nobody can sustain it unless you happen to have COVID and you're, or you're taking care of somebody who has COVID and even then, it's not every minute. Yeah. And and that leads to something else that I wanted to chat about is using specificity, like shop specifics, to make a story come alive in terms of everyday life. Because the minute you go to the mundane and the general, you can lose your reader if it's not something big and exciting happening. If it's everyday life, but you're able to use shop specifics to really make it come alive, that's incredible. So I just want to read, there's this two paragraphs that I'd like to read for our listeners. So one, this is when everybody's arriving for the auditions. Mr. Martin had thought of everything except clipboards, which turned out to be a real oversight. People were using the edge of our table as a desk, creating a bottleneck in the flow of traffic. I tried to decide if it was more depressing to see the people I knew or the people I didn't know. Sally, who worked the register at Major Market and must have been my mother's age, was holding a resume and headshot in her mittened hands. If Sally had always wanted to be an actress, I didn't think I could ever go to the grocery store again. And then there's a part about Veronica. When she looked up and saw me there with the camera, she raised one magnificent eyebrow. Veronica's eyebrows were thick and black and she tweezed them into delicate submission. 
she could get more information across with an eyebrow than other people could with a microphone. Can you chat a bit about that? You know, I am an observer. I think that writers have to be. We have to be listeners and we have to be observers. I remember when I was writing the book Run, there was there was a scene about just a, a moment where a guy looks out the window and a squirrel is trying to climb up the iced pitch of a roof. And somebody said, oh, God, that's just brilliant. How in the world did you come up with that? And I said, I was writing the book and I looked out the window and a squirrel was trying to climb up the ice <laughs> roof of my garage. You know, the, the things that we see with specificity are the things that give us definition and meaning. And usually it's the very small things. It is the eyebrow. It is the squirrel that brings you into the story and and brings the reader into the character's life. But what's important is that you're interested, that you as a human being, not even as a writer, that you are someone who is interested. And another thing that's connected to this, but I just want to say it because I think it's the best piece of writing advice, which I got from Robert Olin Butler years and years ago. And he said, everybody has to write from the white hot center of themselves. He said, you know, you, you have to, you must write from your heart and you must write about the things that you care about and that you see. And if you don't, it will never ring true. And to me, that was just, I just thought, oh, okay, that's sort of the only piece of writing advice I need. I need to operate from the center of myself. So the things that I am worried about, climate change, a woman's right to choose, the pandemic, misogyny, all of those things, they're always going to show, you know, of course they're going to show up. How can you write a book uh, during the pandemic in which you never mentioned the pandemic unless you're going to write a book that's set in the 1700s, which, by the way, most writers seem to have written books set in the 1700s during the pandemic because they just didn't know what was going to happen next. Yeah, I, I love that writing from the white hot center of, of yourself. For me, I call that writing from a place of rage. Every book I've ever written comes from this place of rage. And, you know, for our listeners, not all of you are filled with rage, but certainly there are things that you are passionate about. And I've said before on the show, write about the things that makes you want to wave a chicken or a turkey drumstick at a member of your family at the Thanksgiving table, you know, the things that keep you up at night, because certainly that's going to help you with your putting your bum in the chair every day, coming back to a work over and over again. And and what you were saying in terms of the misogyny, you know, I, I've made some notes here in terms of the social commentary. And what I love, Anne, is that you don't bash somebody over the head with these things. Like in the same way, the young author asked, why are they in the background? I think that's why they work so well, because the reader doesn't feel like they're being lectured to or that someone's waving a finger at them. So, for example, when Laura's talking about something that happened in 1983, she goes, 1983 was a world impossible to explain. A strange man in a suit knocked on the door to the dressing room before I'd had the chance to change into my own clothes. And when I stuck out my head, he said he wanted to talk to me and could we go somewhere quiet for a minute? I said, sure, like a child taking instructions from an adult, which was the case. So it's it's just talking about this young woman who just 
does what this man says. And then there's a part where she gets called back to Hollywood because they say they want to see her swim, to see if she can swim, right? And it goes at you. I did figure it out, of course. Some girl takes you to a room and starts telling you how cute this bikini is going to look on you. You figure it out. I thought of the sturdy navy one piece my grandmother bought, sitting in my duffel bag back at the hotel, the tag still on, and felt a surge of rage for having let myself be so duped. When I went back to the pool, I didn't say a word to any of them. I went to the diving board, bounced hard and high two times, then split the bright blue water with my hands. I did three laps with racing turns. Those fuckers wanted to see if I could swim. I'd show them how to swim. And and then one more place here that I want to point out. So Lara is still a teenager. She is romantically involved with Jimmy, who is 22. And someone else, Mr. Martin, says... 15 will get you 20, Mr. Haywood, he said finally, his voice neither leering nor scolding, just a helpful piece of information passed along. Jimmy's last name was Haywood. Jimmy George removed his hand from my waist and laughed, so I laughed too, even though I had no idea what Mr. Martin was talking about. Years later, I heard the expression again on a set, and it made perfect sense. Mr. Martin had been concerned for Jimmy Haywood's safety. That paragraph sent me into so much rage, and yet it's just so matter of fact. It's just there. Yeah, well, it's because because it's true, and things are true at different times, and it's important to remember that was what was completely acceptable in one decade is absolutely impossible to imagine in another. And the other thing that's so important to remember is that we have never arrived. We will never arrive as a species. So the things that we have moral outrage about now and the things that we completely accept now, in 20 years, in 30 years, people will look back on us and how we are dealing with life with absolute dismay and disbelief because they will not believe what idiots we were in 2023. In the same way that we can say, I cannot believe what idiots they were in 1983. That's just human nature. And it's it's fun to call it out. But I do think that it's very important not to bring your current knowledge to the past. So if you have a character in 1983 who says 15 will get you 20, which let's be honest, when I was in high school, everybody said 15 will get you 20. And it was completely fine. Basically what that meant was you can have sex with a 15 year old girl, but be super duper careful about it so you don't wind up in jail. And it wasn't a problem. Nobody thought about it. No, it wasn't a big deal. So if you're gonna write that scene, you cannot bring your 2023 evolved knowledge and outrage to that scene. Yeah, but what you can do and what you did brilliantly is you have Laura being schooled by her daughters who mm. tell her, you can't say that anymore. So she calls, she she talks about Peter Duke being crazy and insane and her daughters are like, oh, no, 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 you can't say that in this day and age. And she's like, well, it's true. And, and, and she's like, well, what can I say without getting cancelled? So there is that interplay between the generations in which we do get to see that happening. Yes, and that was... A lot of fun to put those scenes in. Uh, there's another one in which 
she's introducing a new character and she talks about what fantastic legs this woman has and and her daughter's <laughs> like yo no 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 you can't you can't lead with a body part you're objectifying her you can't talk about her legs and the woman's a dancer she's like you you know seriously you can't talk about a dancer's legs but that is i'm sure a big part of it that's just me trying to navigate newer waters and figuring out what I can and cannot talk about. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it for, for most of us. And I think that's why woke culture has got such a bad rap and is being used in political campaigns, because people feel stupid when they say something that they that's considered inappropriate. And even saying stupid these days is is inappropriate. So you feel embarrassed when you say something you shouldn't say. But I think that's part of our evolution is going, okay, well, if I can't say it, why can't I say it? And and kind of learning and growing from that and, and you know, trying to navigate it a bit better. Last question. I want to talk about curiosity seeds. So we have emerging writers make the big mistake of laying it all out on the table in like chapter one. They tell us everything. And we say, leave a trail of breadcrumbs. Writing is seduction. You want to keep the reader curious and turning pages. And I want to give two examples that Anne did curiosity seeds brilliantly. All three girls are in their 20s now, and for their evolvement and ostentatious liberation, they have no interest in a story that is not about a handsome, famous man. Still, I am their mother, and they understand that they will have to endure me in order to get to him. I take back my seat on the sofa and begin again, knowing full well that the parts they're waiting to hear are the parts I'm never going to tell them. And then there's another part where Lara's having a conversation with Nell about men in power, and she says to her daughter, nothing happened to me. But then in the narrative, she goes, things happened to me, but not on that day and not like that. And, and then we move on from the story. So, so can you talk a bit about pacing these kinds of clues for the reader so that you don't show your hand up front? I think when I was writing those scenes, that just felt very natural to me. And I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to I'm going to put this in. I'm going to I'm going to hide this little treasure for the reader. It's just strange how we think and what we think about. And I think the most important thing to say about writing is there isn't one way to do it. And and the way I do it, which a lot of times is very instinctual, may not be the way someone else does it, or whether you lay things out at the front, which again, going back to Louise Erdrich, right in the front, she gives you the whole story. She just tells you exactly what it's about. I'm thinking about LaRose, in which a, a child is shot on the like page three of the book. And, and then that family gives their child to the other family whose child is dead unbearable, unbelievable. Everything that happens in that book happens in the first 15 pages, but then she slowly picks apart how it actually feels. So any rule can be broken. Anything can work as long as, as long as it works, you know, as long as you make it believable, as long as you make it into something that a person wants to read, you can prove me wrong over and over again. I love, there's a Margaret Atwood quote that is something like the only universal truth about fiction writing is your posture. You, you have to figure out how to sit properly at a desk. That is the only thing that is true for every single person who writes because yeah, you, you're going to die otherwise. 
I love that. And as Anne said that, I try to sit up because I'm currently in a vortex of chiropractors and physiotherapists because I sit so badly at my desk. So that is excellent, excellent advice. And <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, we are linking to Tom Lake on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you pre-order the book there, you support an independent bookstore, you support the author and the podcast. And thank you so, so much. Thank you. It's been really lovely talking to you. Well, there you have it. There's a whole bunch of rules of writing that we give you really just as guidelines, really just to help prevent you making mistakes that we see so many emerging writers make. But so many of them are rules that Anne has never even heard about. So, you know, don't focus too much on the rules. Don't focus too much on what you have to do and what needs to be there. Just write from that white hot place inside of you and do it really, really well. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? 
Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Before we go to our next guests on today's bonus episode, I just want to let you know that our lines are now open to take your questions for Carly and Cece to answer in the Q&A and to direct your comps requests to for Emily from East City Bookshop. So we had them closed over the summer as we took a bit of a break, but go on to our website, The Shit About Writing, go to the page that says Submit a Question. There's the link there. Remember, you only have a minute to record your comp request or your question. So uh, maybe practice it beforehand or write it down and uh, then listen out for August's show in which we will address that. Please try and get it in as early as possible. We like to give Emily as much time as she possibly can to listen to all your requests before she answers them. And Carly and Cece also need some lead time to come up with the answers to the questions. So if you can get them in by the 15th of August, that'll give us enough time. Right, now moving on to our guests for this bonus episode. Tina and Renee are two lifelong readers with a passion for reading and for sharing their enthusiasm about books with others. They let their moods dictate their reading and hope that by listening to their podcast, book talk, etc., you'll walk away feeling like you've gotten many book recommendations and had a book talk with friends. Now, those of you who've listened to the podcast know that I love bookstagrammers, I love book bloggers, I love book podcasters, because these are the folks who spread the word about writers' books. They get the books into the right hands with the passion and enthusiasm that they bring to reading and sharing their knowledge. And this is exactly why I wanted to have Tina and Renee on the show today, because as authors, we feel like we work in a vacuum. We sit by ourselves in our darkened little rooms, muttering darkly with our imaginary friends. But here's the thing. Once you send this book out, you need to find a market for it. An agent and an editor are wanting to know where on the bookshelf your book is going to be positioned and eventually how it will get into the hands of people like Tina and Renee. So it's really important that you know what people like Tina and Renee love and what they're looking for from their books, which is exactly why I've invited them on today. Tina, I'll start with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We're so excited to be here. Super excited to have you, Renee. Welcome. Thanks for having us. I'm very excited to talk with you. We're so excited to have you because you're on the opposite end of the spectrum of the people we normally speak with. We speak with the creators of books, and now we're going to speak with the people who read the books and who rave about them and who love them and who spread the word. So what we're going to do in today's episode is I'm asking Tina and Renee to discuss three books each that they have loved. And I want them to speak with as much specificity as to what it was about those opening chapters that drew them in and kept them turning pages so that you as our listeners can apply this to your own writing. Tina, let's start with you. What book are you going to kick us off with? 
All right. Well, I'm kicking things off with Shades of Grey by Ruta Sepetis. And this is a debut novel. And she is an author who went on to have a lot of success with her writing. So I, when I read this, I did not know it was her debut until the author's afterward. And I was so impressed because let me tell you, I was sucked in. This one's set in 1941. And it's about 15-year-old Lena, who is Lithuanian. She's a Lithuanian girl living her ordinary life until Soviet officers invade her home and tear her family apart. And she and her mom and young brother become separated from their father and forced on a crowded train. And they make their way to a Siberian work camp where they're forced to fight for their lives, essentially. I am a sucker for a good first sentence that I just, both Renee and I love a good first sentence. And this one's really, really excellent. It hit me with a gut punch. And the first sentence reads, they took me in my nightgown. I'm like, okay, <laughs> already we know. I'm like, who's they? What's going on here? I love the point of view and how the author chose to word this. The way she worded things, you know that the main character is writing her story and telling us the readers her story from a place with perspective. Because the next section goes on to say, and thinking back, the signs were there. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, you're something... You've moved on from this. You survived at least for you know a certain period of time. And in one paragraph, we know that her mother and father intended to escape, but that they were taken before they could. By page two, the captors are literally pounding on their door. I don't know this family, but I am immediately defensive for them. I'm sucked in because as a modern reader, I mean, we know what's coming. We know it's 1941 Lithuania. We understand what's next. And I know you talk on the show about planting curiosity seeds. And just from these 2.5 pages, I have had so many questions. I want to know who is taking them, why, where they're going, what will happen, how they knew to plan for it, how they were thinking of escaping, where were they going to go? I want to know everything from two and a half pages. And I personally love books that make me want to research what took place in real life. This book did a great job of that. And it turns out it's based loosely on the author's own family. So that is my first example. That's amazing. And is it is this book marketed purely as historical fiction or is it YA historical fiction? It's YA historical fiction. Yes. Right. Um, I And I'm very sensitive to, as a reader, and, and I'm not saying these types of books shouldn't exist. If I'm reading YA as an adult, I don't want it to feel too, too, too young this didn't give me that at all. In fact, I didn't really think of it as YA until I was like, oh, this is YA. Like, that's how it's shelved. So, Right. And because we have a young protagonist, so that's why I was asking. So remember for our listeners, the minute you write a really young protagonist, there is a chance that people are going to be like, oh, okay, this is YA. So if it isn't, you need to guard against that. And I love what Tina said about how we begin immediately knowing that the narrator is telling the story from a place in the future that they have survived this which gives them hindsight now the amazing thing about that is a character who's telling you something with the benefit of hindsight means that they can foreshadow they already know how something ended and so they can do a lot of foreshadowing as curiosity seeds which is a wonderful perspective to come to your work from excellent tina thank you so so much right renee what is your first book Okay, my first book, I'm going to start with a literary fiction that is a debut and I think is a brilliant example of a lot of what you're actually talking about structure-wise. And this one is Thirst for Salt by Madeline Lucas. 
And boy, if I wasn't pulled in immediately. This is set on the Australian coast, which has a very vivid setting. It is a story about love, loss, memory, mothers and daughters, and really losing oneself and finding oneself. So what pulled me in? In the opening paragraph, you know that you have a narrator and she is she's looking at a picture that she sees on the internet. And she says, today I saw a picture of Jude with a child. She goes on to talk a little bit about what the little girl looked like. And we know by the end of the first paragraph that that little girl had Jude's lips, which tells me there's something special about Jude. And I already want to know, okay, tell me more. What was so special about Jude? She goes on to talk about how the photograph that she sees, she says she hasn't seen him in so long. It's been such a long time since I'd seen or heard from him. Though sometimes, lonely and between lovers, I looked him up online. There was never much to find. Jude had remained a great register of technology, it seemed, in the time we'd been apart, preserving his privacy and his solitude. Within a few years of the fire, he had all but disappeared. So right there, I'm wondering what happened. This is the second paragraph of the story. I need to know what happened. Why? Obviously, this is somebody you probably loved. Why aren't you with him? Why are you sneaking, looking him up online? And what happened? What was the fire? What led to that? This is all within two paragraphs. Not only add to that, she goes on to create a very visually detailed story in not that many words. She says, if I am 37, Jude would be 55. It was a beautiful photograph, and I was surprised how much that hurt. The greens lush and saturated like a country fresh with rain. Color so rich, I could almost taste the earth, the water in the air. For me, I'm in a, a very atmospheric literary fiction mood this summer. All of that together combined to make me say, I need to know more. I, didn't, I need to know what happened. And uh, it felt a little mysterious. And then the one other thing that really pulled me in, we know within the next few paragraphs that she has returned home to the Australian coast to her mother's house. And we also know because her mother says to her in the next paragraph, you're hung up on the past. My mother said to me earlier tonight, why carry all that around with you? She goes on to give us really good context clues that there's something complicated with her mother. And she says later on, on the next page, how could I not be hung up on the past? I wanted to say to my mother, when so many things I've loved have been left behind there. So this is a story also told from a time in the future, which I mean, the present day, she is 37. When we go back in the story to hear what happened, she goes back to when she was 25. So it's that that juxtaposition of hindsight and wisdom later. And I just really love that. I love I love that. So this is everything I told you was within the first five pages. That's absolutely amazing. And for our listeners out there, 
we hear from many writers who go, but I'm writing literary fiction. I'm writing gorgeous prose and it's really character driven. So why do I need these devices to hook readers? Even quieter novels these days need to have that hook. You need to draw the reader in. And it's these kinds of devices that really allow you to do that. Renee, in terms of the book, is it a dual timeline narrative? So when we go back into the past, is that her when she's completely younger as opposed to flashbacks? Yes, you will. Yes, you will stay there for quite a while. And she intersperses present day thoughts. But mostly we are going to go back and we're going to stay in that story. And then we're just here and there going to get the present day. And then later on, she she's going to spend more time in the in the present day, but not initially. And what I really liked about that is the fact that it it made me forget that we were even at a time in the present day because I, I got so pulled in to what happened in the past and we were able to stay there without that rapidly shifting time perspective. Amazing. So for our listeners who are writing dual timeline novels, but who aren't one chapter present, one chapter past, one chapter present, one chapter past, this sounds like an awesome book to go take a look at to see how this author was able to do that. Thank you so much, Renee. Okay, Tina, your next one. Next for me is Boys in the Valley by Philip Fricasse. And this is a brand new book. This one just came out in July 2023. And they call it coming-of-age horror. And something that's interesting, Bianca, you said, this is not young adult. I do not think, unless you have a very, very mature young adult that wants to dive in, this is straight-up horror, although you do have some younger protagonists. The comps to this are what initially pulled me in. It's The Exorcist and Lord of the Flies. Love that. And again, this will appeal to a very specific reader, somebody who does not mind horror stories with children or possession, and that reader is me. The book opens with setting the backstory for the hero of the book, Peter Barlow. And we know from the synopsis that he is orphaned as a child due to a brutal murder. And in these first few pages, we find out what happened, and it's worse than you can imagine. The boy is woken in the middle of the night when his father comes home. He's drunk again, and Peter is watching a scene that he is not supposed to. And he witnesses his mother and father fighting. The reader gets a lot of information about his family life and the state of the culture at the time. It's tense. There's not enough money. There's not enough food. And mom is blaming the father because he's the breadwinner. He's the only one that's able to go out and provide. And the author gives us all of this backstory, all of this information while still keeping the reader in suspense because you know something's going to happen. And it does. And then the book goes right into part one, which begins seven years later. And we know this because at the top, the author gives you the year, he puts you there, and you know immediately my brain was like, oh my gosh, how much time has taken place? I love how he set up the next chapter though. Peter, wake up. I open my eyes to the familiar. So now we find out that Peter is living in this orphanage, and he has been there since that opening scene seven years ago. We also know that this is his usual nightmare. He's has he's prone to nightmares because his friend's like, hey, wake up again. You're doing it again. And it's an ordinary day in the orphanage. But the writer still creates this sense of dread. I'm immediately on my heels. The boy and Peter go outside, take stock of the weather and their forthcoming tasks and what they have to do for the day. And Peter reflects and says, I wonder if any of the boys will die before spring shows its face again and say a silent prayer for all of them. Love this. It's good foreshadowing because we know that 
not all the boys are about to make it to spring. <laughs> we don't know why. We don't know how. But in the same time that it's gorgeous writing, it's horror, but it's really, really solid writing. We also get a sense for who Peter is. He's thoughtful. He cares about the people around him. He's making the best of the situation that he's in. And I just love this setup. Amazing. That first chapter, is that a prologue or is it put as chapter one? Can you tell us? It is a prologue. It doesn't say that, but it just, it doesn't have any title. It just says Harris Valley, Pennsylvania, 1898 midnight. And then it goes part one, we are many. And then chapter one. Amazing. Yes. So, so for our listeners who are working on prologues, this is obviously an example of a really good prologue. And I love that Tina likes the date and the timestamps because we're always saying orientate your reader. There's nothing more frustrating as a reader when you're reading a chapter and you're like, when does this take place? Is it two days later? Is it two years later? Where the heck are we in time? And just that that date, timestamp, place stamp really, really helps to orientate somebody. And again, here we have something that's got really beautiful writing, lush prose. But look at how this writer is working really hard to suck the reader in and create all of these questions that they have to keep reading to get the answers to. You've now got that on my list, Tina, and I can't say that I'm a horror fan. So I'm going to trust you on this one. Okay, sounds good. Alrighty, Renee, what's your next book? Okay, my next book is a memoir. And I know that you have talked about memoirs on your show before. So I I wanted to bring one of these because sometimes memoirs are tricky. They're a little tricky to review. And and I'm kind of a picky memoir reader. So this one is The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. Before you carry on. Tell us why you're a picky memoir reader and what attracts you to memoir, because we have a lot of memoirists listening to the show. And we always say it is so difficult if you don't have a big platform and if you aren't a celebrity to put a memoir out there. How are you going to get people interested in your memoir when you're someone who's unknown, et cetera, et cetera. So let's hear it from someone who who is picky about their memoirs. What attracts you to the specific ones you read? Okay. I say I'm picky about memoirs because I tend to read mostly fiction. I think probably 85 to 90% of my reading is fiction. So when I do come across a memoir, it has to be something that I feel like personally for me, I'm going to learn something. I'm going to hear about an experience that is not my own. I tend to gravitate towards memoirs like that versus celebrity memoirs. I don't tend to read a lot of celebrity memoirs. So if you are a memoir writer, I think it's quite possible that you have something interesting to say. And it doesn't matter to me if you are a celebrity or not. Just tell me tell me what you want to say. And so how do you make that interesting? Maybe that's what we can kind of share. Now, Anthony Ray Hinton came on my radar because Oprah had picked this for her book club, but his story is one that appeals to me. I I tend to like social justice memoirs. I want to know more about our criminal justice system, the, the wrongs, and how do people survive. And in particular, Anthony Ray Hinton um, we know I knew before I even picked up the book that he had been on death row for 30 years and his conviction was overturned. He was let out of prison. So my initial question is, how does one survive that? That is really the overriding question I picked this book up wondering about. 
And what I really like, and I think I think maybe it would be great advice, is he has a forward. And yes, his forward is by Brian Stevenson, which a lot of us know from the book Just Mercy. He was the author of the book Just Mercy. So he is a a larger voice to have a forward. But I did like the fact that the forward tells us a bit about what we can expect from the story. And and what Brian Stevenson does in the very first paragraph is introduce us to Anthony Ray Hinton. And he tells us right away that Anthony Ray Hinton was released from prison after spending 30 years, almost all of that in solitary confinement on Alabama's death row. We know right away that he's out of jail, but we also know that he was proved innocent. And Brian Stevenson says, most of us can't possibly imagine what it feels like to be arrested, accused of something horrible, imprisoned, wrongly convicted, because we don't have the money needed to defend ourselves. And his use of most of us, I felt pulled me in as a reader because I I felt like he was making um, me a part of the story. So he does go on to really let us know a little bit about who Anthony was And he says at the end of the first page, he lived with his mother until he was in his late 20s. He worked as a contract laborer. He had never been accused of a violent crime before his arrest. So for me, the reader, I'm wondering how did it happen? What what led to Anthony being convicted? And so right then I wanted to know more. Okay, the foreword goes right to chapter one and we hear from Anthony. And the very first sentence Um, it really set up what I needed to know and what I thought I could expect from the story. And he said, there's no way to know the exact second your life changes forever. You can only begin to know that moment by looking in the rear view mirror. And trust me when I tell you that you never, ever see it coming. What an opening sentence. And this first chapter will set up a little bit about what we can expect, which is the fact that Anthony, he tells us, was forced to live in a room the size of a bathroom that's five feet wide by seven feet long. And by doing so, you have plenty of time to replay the moments of your life. What if you had did this differently? What if you had gotten the baseball scholarship? What if, what if, what if? And he goes on to tell us a bit about what happened in December of 1986 in the jailhouse. So he puts us right into the courtroom when his sentence is coming down. What is he thinking? What is he feeling? What I really liked about this opening chapter, he lets us know about his mother. He lets us know about his best friend, Lester. He lets us know about himself. And I was so invested in him as a person by the time I finished chapter one, that I was ready for him to then go back. In chapter two, he goes back to 1974, which is back to his childhood. If he would have started with that, and in in other memoirs that I've read, when they go, when they start way back in the childhood, it tends to lose me. So by him starting in the courthouse, in where we we got, I mean, it was it was horrific to read. It is chilling. It is haunting. It made me think I need to stay with I need to stay with this story because I have to find out how he survived 
I got all of that from chapter one, then I'm there, then I'm invested, then I'm connected and I'm ready to go back and, and learn more about you in the chapters forthcoming. Amazing, Renee. Thank you so much. Yeah, what Renee just said is so true. You don't want to start with the tension leak. If you just start with him as a child, you're like, who cares? Who cares about his childhood, right? But you start with him in that moment. And what Renee was talking about is interiority and emotionality. She said that he gave us his thoughts, he gave us his feelings. That is how you get the reader on board so that they feel like they are there with the character or with the memoirist experiencing what they are experiencing themselves rather than just rubbernecking and driving past and bearing witness to it. So that's why on the podcast we constantly are belaboring the points. Interiority, we need thoughts, we need emotions because that is what connects a reader to a character, to a particular story. So I love that you pointed that out, Renee. Thank you. Okay, Tina, let's go to your last one. All right. Last up for me is Miracle Creek. And this is another debut. The author is Angie Kim. This one came out in 2019. This is a literary courtroom thriller about the fallout that happens when a hyperbaric chamber that may cure a range of conditions from infertility to autism explodes. Two people die and this explosion, it becomes clear that it was not an accident. First of all, I love a clear synopsis. Give me something that I can sum up in two sentences. If I'm trying to sell this book on my listeners or our people that I'm trying to push books onto, it's helpful if I understand what we're getting into. Um, I don't want to have to work too hard to interpret. Like, what am I about to read about? And I also, again, love it when an author gives us a clear sense of time period. This book, I think, did a great job. I didn't know what a hyperbaric chamber was when I read this. She opens it with Mosby's Medical Dictionary definition of hyperbaric oxygenation. So if you want to read that, if you're curious, if you didn't know, great. There it is for you on page one. Then it opens with the incident. I do personally like a good chapter title. And we know we're in Miracle Creek, Virginia. Tuesday, August 26, 2008, which tells me Tuesday, the August 26, the specific date is important. I bet you this book's going to take place over the course of a shorter amount of time. There are so many curiosity seeds planted in this one from the very first sentence. Very first sentence is, my husband asked me to lie. Like, All right. I love a lie. So tell me more. Why is he doing that? Really good foreshadowing takes place after this because she he basically asks her to take over while this chamber is going on. He's the only one that's certified. She is not. and But he has to go somewhere. And immediately I'm like, why are you leaving her? What's going on? As she is kind of moving and jostling around, she bumps his certification and it like goes crooked on the wall. Really good foreshadowing because I'm like, uh oh, something's going to happen. And we know again, he's never left her in charge when it's running and we get the sense that she's not qualified to run this thing. And, and I want to know why. We also find out in the next second, third paragraph, some major things have already gone wrong today. There's protesters with a sabotage plan. There is a power outage. There's police. What's happened? And then she hits us with this sentence, the sentence I had to bring because it's just so poignant and there's just so much involved in it. Did he think so much had already happened that nothing more could? But life doesn't work like that. Tragedies don't inoculate you against further tragedies. And misfortune doesn't get sprinkled out in fair proportions. Bad things get hurled at you in clumps and batches, unmanageable and messy. 
that's on page two. It's <laughs> like, okay, what do we got here? Tell me more, Angie Kim. I'm very excited for her upcoming book, Happiness Falls. It comes out um, later this summer, August 29th, I believe. But that's what hooked me for this one. Amazing. I love all of that, right? So guys, we've got, look at the conflict we've got in these opening pages, because we're also always saying start with conflict. We've got interpersonal conflict. We've got inner conflict because she doesn't feel like she's qualified to do this. She's obviously pissed off at her husband for putting her in this predicament. We've got protesters standing outside their property. So we've got them against society or them against a group of other people. So we've got a lot of conflict in the opening pages besides curiosity seeds. And it sounds like a ticking time bomb as well. So look how hard she's worked to to put it all there in those opening pages and it's also a very literary work so let's stop saying okay my work's literary so I don't need that much plot and I don't need a hook all right and now we're going to Renee for her last one okay I am going to finish up today with a thriller and I think that's a great segue because boy does he show conflict in the beginning of this book it is those who wish me dead by Michael Carita and this is a very much a first paragraph, last paragraph of chapter one that wowed me, plus what's in between. Okay, the first paragraph says, on the last day of Jace Wilson's life, the 14-year-old stood on the quarry ledge staring at cool, still water and finally understood something his mother had told him years before. Trouble might come for you when you showed fear, but trouble doubled down when you lied about being afraid. At the time, Jace hadn't known exactly what she was talking about. Today, he did. What I especially like about that is obviously we know he's standing, he's young, he's standing at the edge of a quarry. What are you doing? And I like how he did a really long sentence with a really short sentence at the end. So that goes immediately into details about the fact that he is standing in front of a 65-foot drop from something called the rooftop. And he's standing there because other kids bet him that he wouldn't jump. And so he is there at night. We find this out in the next few paragraphs. He is there at night to practice when nobody else is around because he wants to see if he can do it because he doesn't want to be made fun of if the time for when the time comes and he and girls will be there. And so we get a really clear picture within a few paragraphs that this is a kid who is not only smart, but also he he may be a little fearless. The paragraphs go on and he sets up the setting brilliantly. We know it's night. A short while later, we read that lightning is striking. So there's a storm in the distance. So it's night, a storm is coming, and he decides, okay, it's now or never. I've got to practice this. I've got to jump. He jumps. This is not a spoiler. This is part of the story. He jumps. And when he lands in the water, he goes down, he feels something, and and automatically he's like, "Uh, this isn't supposed to be there. He opens his eyes because he's able to touch it. It's a dead body in the first six to eight paragraphs. So, okay, the... The tension is sky high. He like goes to the surface. He gets out. He finds that he got out on the wrong side of the quarry because his clothes are still on the other side of the quarry. So it's conflict after conflict after conflict. How is he going to get to those clothes? Turns out something happens and he hears a car and he 
cannot get to his clothes. The car pulls up. Two quote unquote police officers get out. They have a guy covered in a hood and they murder him. And this 14 year old boy sees the whole thing, gets back in the water to hide. And at the same time, at the end of chapter one, they have spotted his clothes. And so he's in the water. He can see and hear what's going on. And we end chapter one with the strangely serene voices of the men went silent, but there was another sound, a clear metallic snap. Jace had been around the shooting range with his dad enough to recognize that one, a round being chambered into a gun. The men circled the quarry rim and down below them, pinned in the dark rocks, Jace Wilson began to cry. So wow to that chapter one. I was in it. It was stunning. I mean, I'm there then. The pace was on point. I needed to know what was going to happen to Jace. Were they going to catch him? And what what is really brilliant about this is chapter two takes us not to the quarry, but to Montana and to a snowstorm blizzard and to a completely different setting. So I, I have to then keep reading to figure out how do those people in the blizzard factor into this story and also what happened to Jace? Amazing. I have to add this book to my list. It's the second time it's been recommended. The first was First time was by Hank Philippi Ryan, the author who spoke at the Deep Dive Workshop series, and she cited this as an excellent opening. So now you have it from an author and from a reader. So for those of you who are wanting to build attention, go read this book. And I love looking at the deliberate choices authors make. This author, there seems like enough conflict and tension here that they could have just have had this kid going there to just go for a moonlight swim and then find the body. But we start with the kid psyching himself up to jump off of a quarry. So we have the tension in the kid doing this thing that's reckless and we're worried for him. And then he jumps in and then he finds the body. It would have been full of tension enough if he was just there out in the moonlight swimming or doing something else he shouldn't have and he witnessed a murder. But look at the very deliberate choices that this author has made in terms of upping the tension. Right, Tina and Renee, we at the end of our time together. Thank you both for for these incredibly thoughtful insights. I, I know they're going to be really, really helpful to our listeners. Thank you for the time you've taken to chat with us. Thank Thanks you. for having us. This was fun. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page. And please, spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is a graduate of the MFA program at the University of California, Irvine. She is the author of the novel No One Is Here Except All of Us and the short story collection A Guide to Being Born. Her work has been published in the New Yorker, One Story, the Paris Review Daily, Best American Fantasy, and elsewhere, and has received special mentions in the Best American Short Stories and the Best American Non-Required Reading. 
She has been longlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award and was a finalist for the New York Public Library Young Lions Award and the Pushcart Prize. It's my pleasure to welcome Ramona Osabel. Ramona, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm really happy to be here. That is an incredibly impressive resume for an incredibly impressive book. So for our listeners, the book that we're talking about today is The Last Animal. I'm going to read you the flap copy just so that you know the context of what we're talking about. Teenage sisters Eve and Vera never imagined their summer vacation would be spent in the Arctic, tagging along on their mother's scientific expedition. But a lot of things haven't been going as planned for them lately, and truth be told, their single mother might be feeling similarly unsettled. Now in Siberia with a bunch of serious biologists, even Vera are just bored enough to cause trouble. Fooling around in the permafrost, they accidentally discover a perfectly preserved 4,000-year-old baby mammoth, and things finally start to get interesting. The discovery sets off a surprising chain of events, leading mother and daughters to go rogue, pinging from the slopes of Siberia to the shores of Iceland to an exotic animal farm in Italy, and resulting in the birth of a creature that could change the world, or at least this family. Right, so that is one hell of a premise, Ramona. Can you take us through where the inspiration for this came from? Yeah, yeah. so my the first sort of little seeds of inspiration came when my daughter, who is now eight and a half, was a tiny little baby and she was sleeping on my chest. And I, it felt that, that feeling of falling in love with a creature who had never existed before. I was lying there with this little being who I didn't even know yet, but I knew that I would love forever. And then I, she fell asleep. So I thought I better get some work done. So I opened my laptop and the story popped up about scientists working to de-extinct various creatures, including a woolly mammoth. And it felt like such a human, the, the sort of bigness of the idea that we love those ambitious, strange attempts, but also I felt in it a little bit of kind of tenderness of wanting to love an animal the way that, you know, we think that woolly mammoths are just so, they're so sweet. They're so shaggy. They're like the, you know, the golden doodle of pachyderms. You just want one. So there I was with this new creature and scientists working to create a new creature. And there that began to sort of bloom in my mind as a fair, potentially interesting novel landscape. Amazing. And prior to this, I mean, what is your scientific background? Because we're going to get into the scientific details that we get in this book. And we're going to discuss for our listeners who are trying to do the same thing, how to avoid info dumps when you are trying desperately to convey very, very technical information to your readers for contextual purposes, etc. But prior to this, like how much of a scientific background did you have? How much knowledge did you have coming into this? And how much of it was research that you really had to do to understand this? Great question. I don't have any real scientific background. I have a, a really cool uncle who's a scientist and I've gotten, we're close and I have gotten to go along on some, not this actual scientific expeditions where they're doing the science, but to some of the meetings where they're meeting to talk about things and I read his, his papers. And so I have that sort of, but it's completely, I mean, there's no professional training whatsoever. So I, I did get some sort of, he would sort of feed me some good, some good tips, but otherwise I did start with research, but I like to think of research as sort of medicinal. So I'm not, I do not need to become an actual expert in the thing. I just need to know enough to find a story that's plausible, but 
the real, the like the emotional truth, the actual, the story truth is up to me as a fiction writer. So I have to have enough information to be able to sort of create a story that feels true more than a story that would happen the way it would really happen. And I think that's kind of the line between real science fiction, where there's, you know, huge info dumps. I read because this book has to do with bringing back species. I read Jurassic Park at the beginning of the writing process. And I had never read it. I'd seen the movie, but I was surprised by how much info dumping there was. There's so much technical explanation and information and justification. And I think that's because it's really true science fiction, where what I'm doing is more sort of literary fiction with some scientific inspiration in it. So I wanted a lot less of the explanation. And therefore I needed to have, I just needed to have sort of a base understanding and then I could create the story. And then I go back into a second round of research where I kind of fine tune to make sure that I'm falling in the land of plausibility, even though it's not actually how it would happen in the world. I'm so glad you touched on plausibility because that's so important. And it's not just important in these kinds of stories. So we have listeners who are working on these kinds of stories. And then plausibility is extremely, extremely important. Because, yes, you do want your readers to a certain degree to suspend disbelief, but not so much that they are completely taken out of the story. But even in other stories, when it comes to things like coincidences, if you have one coincidence too many it's not plausible. And I've had writers say, but this really happened in my life. I really ended up sitting next to my long lost sister who I'd never met on a flight to whatever. And then afterwards I ran into so-and-so and these kinds of things can happen in life. But in fiction, we're like, mm, you know, we, we want things to be a bit more plausible. So that's, that's important. To what Ramona said here, in terms of the personal universal element, because essentially, I mean, this book is about a woolly mammoth, but essentially it is about overcoming grief. It is about this family who's been left without the husband and their dad, and they're kind of floundering and they're trying to work through this grief. And that is the personal universal element that every reader can relate to is grief and loss, whether they're interested in the science or not. So can you talk a bit about leaning into that, Ramona? Absolutely. Yeah. So that that in the end was what I really cared about in the story is the intersection between the lived lives of these three women. So it's two teenage daughters. They start when they're at the opening of the book, they're 13 and 15 and their mom, Jane, who their dad died a year before the story opens. And they're in a state that is kind of surreal because they've lost a person who was core to their entire existence and each of them in a different way and their family structure has been rearranged and he was also kind of the main breadwinner he was older and more established in his career so the mother is now having to figure out how to be the person who is the solid platform on which everything is built and and take care of her daughters and take care of herself and it has put them into kind of a, another altered universe so they already feel like the, the ground is not solid anymore. There's no steadiness. So when things start to get strange and the girls discover this baby mammoth preserved in the permafrost and decisions are made based on that, they're not making decisions from a clear and logical place because once you've, your whole sort of heart has been scrambled up, you see things differently and you make decisions differently. And that was what I was really interested in is how we move through the world as people, which we always are, even if we think we're trying to be scientific and, you know, intelligent, we're always also humans who are faulty and complicated and who are influenced in a big way by our emotional states. 
So what happens when you're trying to make practical decisions in an impractical situation? And that was where it felt like a really good opportunity for fiction. That's what fiction is so good at is saying like, well, okay, we've got all these elements together. What are you going to do when nothing makes sense? What kind of sense do you start to make? And where does your internal emotional logic lead you that in this unique moment in life? Yeah, I, I love that. Okay, so pivoting from that, something I want to speak to you about is... So on our podcast, we review a lot of query letters. We've got two agents who look at query letters and opening pages and give authors feedback on their work to polish it and help them figure out where their books fit in the market. And often if we have a book that is beginning with teenagers, with a teenage narrator, we kind of look at the tone of it, et cetera, and we sometimes say, you're pitching this as whatever, but it's coming across more as YA, and the fact that you have these teenage protagonists is not helping in terms of you positioning it as more literary or whatever the case may be is. So it took me a while when reading this to figure out that it's the 13-year-old, right? It's Vera who is the narrator of, of the story. And you have a very interesting POV approach to her because it is not super third person close, but it's not omniscient either. So can you tell us a bit about how you positioned the story, how you can write about young protagonists without it necessarily being YA and how you chose this particular point of view? Oh, good series of questions. Yeah. So one thing is that so work changes a lot over time. And this is something I think I didn't realize when I started out writing is how how very, very much every part is a moving part. And that the original concept, for me at least, is usually pretty far from what I end up with. So the, the work and I are sort of having is a relationship and I'm listening as much as I'm telling it what to do. So it was written for a lot of drafts in a more distant third person where we went into everybody's heads. So we were hearing from them, we were we were with them, and they they were each kind of, I would say, relatively equal in their presence on the page. And late in the writing, and through a conversation with my editor, we landed on for us to only go into one person's head and for that person to be kind of the main character, even though it's really about all of them. But she's the person. So Vera was the person that I decided to work with. So I had a lot of kind of adult thinking that had happened through Jane and through other characters that was there. And so I think it has, that's part of why it has a more adult feel. And it wasn't, it, I, it doesn't feel, I think like YA, but yeah, I mean, I guess I was really interested in writing the character of Vera as a burgeoning adult because of their, their dad's death. And because their mom is busy now. She's she's working, she's taking care of them. She's kind of not available to be their mom the way she might have been before. So the girls have had to grow up all of a sudden and they're all making they're all in these places that are unfamiliar to all of them from Siberia to Iceland to Italy. They're in making decisions that are they're way past the realm of sort of reasonable clear decision-making trees. They've sort of entered into a strange mythical place. So the girls have had to become full participants in the situation in a way that they might not have in another part of their life. And that, again, I think is sort of changes the tone and texture of the book so that it doesn't feel so YA and feels more literary. And 
I don't know. I also sort of feel like some of those genre lines are some of sometimes they make a lot of sense. And there's there are conventions and rules that we follow when we're writing strict YA or strict literary fiction or romance or whatever genre you're in. But I think we also there's a lot of places at the edges where we blend and we're in both. And it's and I kind of like that territory, like where I'm not I'm not working based on the rules of the genre. I'm working based on the rules of my particular book. And if it crosses, we veer over here. We've got a 13-year-old narrator. She's not actually the narrator. She's it's third person. So we, we do get sort of, you know, that distance. But we've, we're in her protagonist. That's all right. Cool. That sort of like pushes us a little into the... And then the wave hits us and we come back and wash back over to more adult literary fiction. Yeah. So I like I like to not feel like I'm being told what to do by the outside rules, but to, to really do it the way it feels true to me and then let the let it make sense after whoever wants to buy that book and whoever you know however we want to try to where the audience that we that feels right to to start to look toward rather than being like bossed around from the outside <laughs> yeah yeah I, I love that discussion about the evolution of the work when we're talking about a book that's so much to do with evolution and that makes so much sense to me now when you've explained your process because I was thinking this is such a difficult narrative voice to kind of nail from the outset, but it makes sense that it was an evolution of that. And for our listeners, don't fall into the trap of going, okay, first person is just me and I pronouns, and third person is she and Eve and Vera pronouns, because the point of view changes the way that the story is told entirely. Because how one character sees something is very different to how another character might see it. And an omniscient kind of POV is much more sort of objective and removed, taking a wide angle view of everything rather than a super close view if you were doing third person close. So don't be afraid to do what Ramona has done. Play around with your point of views and don't just think, okay, all I have to do is change the she to I and be in conversation with your work because this is the kind of magic that can happen if you are open to those kinds of changes. Now, you were saying, Ramona, about the sort of mythical work. I actually want to read to our listeners the first page of chapter one, which is a very wide angle lens. This is almost like a fairy tale once upon a time opening before we go to Vera in, in the third person. So just have a listen here. In the age of extinction, two tag-along daughters traveled to the edge of the world with their mother to search the frozen earth for the bones of woolly mammoths. Eve was 15, reshaping herself more each day. Vera, just shy of 13, was a stubborn straight line. Jane, their mother, was a graduate student in paleobiology. Their father had died one year before, plunged into the shock green mountain in a tiny car on a tiny road in Italy where he was doing research for an article. Now they were three. Girls, sad and angry and growing and trying. Mom, sad and angry and trying. Hauling their bodies across the scoop of sky to get to a bare place a lost place where ancient beasts had once roamed. Somehow they hoped this trip would be the beginning of a new road, gentler ascending. And that's kind of got this once upon a time introductory feel to it. And, and almost like the narrator is a collective because it says somehow they hoped. So we, we're focusing on the group as a whole 
And then after that, we, we kind of start moving in closer to Vera. So was this always the opening in terms of that omniscient voice? And, and can you speak a bit about moving from this to more of the third person closer? No, this was not always the opening. I am constantly telling my students and writers that the beginning of the book is probably the last thing that you will figure out. For me, it always is. I mean, I start at the beginning. I don't start at the end, but I only know when I'm starting at the beginning the first time, I know a little bit about what I'm trying to do, but I don't really know what the story is yet. Even if I have some kind of like general sense of the the plot or the characters, there is so much that I will learn about the story only by writing it. That's the only way that I can fully understand the thing. And not just writing it one time, but a few times, like maybe I think this was maybe six or seven drafts, this one. So by the end of that, if you think of a, a cliff side with a river running through, you know, so the cliff has sort of been revealed by the by the channel of that river over time. And you can see all the strata of all the different geology that has existed. I That first draft, I just know that early geology. I just have one little sort of stripe of stone. And then every time I I come back to the page every day, I know a little bit more. So I start to have kind of that the layers of understanding of what the story is really about and the mechanics, how it's going to work, who's going to tell it, how close we're going to get, where we're going to go in space and time, how long it's, how long we stay in each scene, you know, all of that stuff is revealed to me by the writing process. So by the time I have that and I really understand all the way from the oldest layers up to the top and we meet the sky, then I go back to that beginning and I know everything that I need to set up there. And I know something about so, I mean, some of that, what's in that beginning is we meet everybody. So who is, who are these three main characters and and wh what moment do they begin? So they begin a year after the father dies. We have a little taste of what happened when he died. We have a little tiny taste only of who they each are, but not, I'm not going to give you large swaths of information, but I need you to have the flavor so that you feel like you're entering the story with just sort of like a, a sensory experience. Um, and I think the tone of that fairy tale thing that you notice is really important that like we're in a story. This is a moment in their lives that will change everything about what happens after. And it does kind of have a once upon a time. And they are because of that sort of altered state of grief, that things are a little sort of misty and peculiar and a little sparkly. And they're in this weird place. And so it's all has it feels a little elevated. It's not a like regular humdrum every day. If it was, I would want a really different tone at the beginning. And I didn't totally know that when I started. So I, I got to come back to that the very end and set everything up. So I'm kind of like sowing the seeds of everything that will bloom. And because I don't know what's blooming when I'm writing my first draft, I can't sow the, all the seeds. So yes, of course, I have to come back and make that just right way later. Excellent advice, because I think too many emerging writers spend months sort of on that first chapter, right? They start it and they carry on with it and they edit it at the line level. And by the end of the novel, that is probably not your opening chapter anymore. So definitely something to come back to later to really polish. There is a game that these two characters play, Vera and Eve played this game, that I, in reading this, I was like, oh my God, this is actually a metaphor for story theory. 
because we say in story theory, give a character something they want and then throw as many obstacles at them as you possibly can to prevent them from getting it. So we need to torture our characters, right? Whether it's existential crises, whether it's external conflict, this is what we're doing. And I just want to read for our listeners this game that they play. And I want to challenge our listeners to think about your story structure in terms of plot, especially in your second act in this way. So they play a game called, let me read it to you. Eve and Vera played a favorite game, Fortunately, Unfortunately, a game that had traveled with them on buses, planes, ships, trains all over the globe. Once there were two sisters who wanted to run away, Eve started. Vera said, Fortunately, they had large bags full of precious gems. Unfortunately, Eve continued, the gems were heavy and the girls couldn't carry them. Fortunately, they came upon a cave where they could hide the bags until they had a way to transport them. Unfortunately, there was a wild and ferocious bear living in the cage. Vera smiled at her older sister. You always put a ferocious bear. It's a classic, right? So for me, as I was reading this, I was like, oh my God, this is story theory because we begin with a, unfortunately, the character woke up to the ringing phone to be told that this person had died and they need to be they need to come immediately. Fortunately, they were able to phone their boss and get there. Unfortunately, on the way, they had a flat tire or whatever the case may be is. So so can you speak a bit about that? Yeah. So this is a game that we play in our family with my husband and kids. And I, I started noticing that too, thinking like, this is, it's kind of, you're right. Like, this is sort of it. This is kind of all we're doing when we're writing a story is sort of like, a swoosh of energy that leads us that like carries us along for a little while and then an obstacle and something we have to solve and get through. And then we solve that thing by using our ingenuity, by using the resources that we have, whatever that is, whether it's like a character, they're lost, they're taken a bus, they're stuck, the bus is, you know, they've gotten dropped off in the middle of the desert. They don't know where they are, but luckily they reach into their pocket and they find, you know, the, the quarter that they can use to, to make a phone call. They have nothing but except this one quarter. And then they using the, that phone call, they can open up a little bit of space. But the bad news is, you know, they've dialed the wrong number or whatever. That That is, that's tension. That's dramatic tension is what key, what keeps the story moving forward is using just kind of the resources that you have and against the obstacle that's in your way. I mean, in, in a story, in a, in a longer narrative, you need longer intervals. It can't come quite so fast and furious because it's unwieldy and it's impossible to write all of it. You need more room and more space. But, but basically, I mean, that's essentially what it is. And it could be, we change the order. So I, because we're a family of four, whatever you start on is always, you know, if you're an unfortunately, you're always an unfortunately. And I, so I said, we can't, I don't want to always be the unfortunately in this version. So we, we now have the game where you can, you can choose, you can do it fortunately or an unfortunately, which means that, that you get those longer intervals. So you have like a series of, oh good, oh good, oh good. Oh no, now we have this. And in a way, it creates more drama. So thinking about that as a writer, too, of like you don't have to intersperse. Every every good news doesn't have to be immediately followed by devastation, but a few threads of trouble and then something really helpful happens is so satisfying and is such a like, oh, okay, maybe we're going to get through it now. And then, you know, maybe a little setback along the way. Yeah. So thinking of and thinking of it like a game, you know, the story is kind of a game that you're, you're trying to a puzzle that you're trying to solve and that the characters are trying to solve, too. Even if it's something very serious that we're all we're, we work that way or our brains work that way. Yeah. So fortunately can be a whole chapter. Then you can have a few unfortunately scenes and then another fortunately. But I think if you sort of map out the plot of your story and fortunately, unfortunately, I think you're going to get into seeing that you're hitting quite a few story beats, especially if 
for our listeners, you're looking at things like Save the Cat Writes a Novel and you're looking for those different story beats, try the fortunately, unfortunately method. I definitely, I was looking at this and going, oh, I think I'm going to try this. Okay, so last question, because we don't have much time left. Let's talk about the information that you need to convey in this kind of book without it being an information dump. So what I loved is you had these men, right, to male scientists who kind of full of themselves and knew all of these things. And sometimes when there was information sort of that needed to be relayed, we almost had this pompous mansplaining, right? You had the scientist guy who was like, oh, you are young girls, you know nothing. I am going to fill you in on things. And then we got really interesting information like that. Was that sort of done on purpose? Was it a way of going, okay, how am I going to get this information across to the reader in conversations as opposed to just reading like a textbook? Exactly. Yeah, I have this tricky thing. So I knew because the book is about it really it's based on people are really, really are working on de-extinction projects for various animals, including woolly mammoths. And they really are using CRISPR technology, which we're using for all kinds of things, including COVID vaccines and um, lots of other stuff. Um, So it's it's real science. And I wanted that to be clear. I wanted it to be like to not feel like we're off in some absolutely inventive universe. But exactly like you say, I did not want it to be like, dear reader, let me now explain to you everything. Like, why are we, who's explaining this? Why are we explaining? It needs to come about organically and in a way that feels like it's, it's actually integrated into the story. And we have these, at this point, I understood later on that we was in the, in the, the only person whose head we're going to go into is this 13 year old. So it would make sense for her to explain it. But it also wouldn't make sense. She's in this, she's has the mom she's had for a long time. So she wouldn't be hearing it for the first time from her mom. So it doesn't make sense for Jane to explain it to the reader by way of daughters. But then I have, I sort of used the resources that I had, which was here we are in Siberia. And we do, we're with, the, these are the only three women, three women on the trip. The rest of them are all these older guys. And they do have this kind of mansplaining thing. And they, the, the men, that's also an important thematic thread in the book is that Jane is the only woman in her lab and she has gotten pretty used to being overlooked, being asked to take notes where the men are asked to do actual thinking. And we're in a realm of, unfortunately, every career path has this, but I think STEM is is pronounced that women in science are newer. It's been a long time where we didn't even consider that women could do these things. So that's a, that's a piece that's, that's absolutely integral to the whole story and the, and the reason that all of these, that these decisions get made is partly out of frustration from being overlooked and unseen. So not only did, was it a good delivery mechanism for all the, here's how de-extinction works, here's how CRISPR works, gene editing, and all of this, but it also conveyed the story of a woman who is being, these three women who actually, in fact, know everything that these guys are talking about, but have to sit through it once again. So it was like doing double duty. And it felt like I was like, this is great. This is a really, this is a really good way for the readers to get a sense so that we feel informed, but also like, oh, we're rolling our eyes at the same time. Yeah. And another personal universal element, because I don't think there's a woman out there that hasn't sat through a man at some point, mansplaining something to her, generally her own job when he doesn't do her job, but yes. So another great personal universal element. So for our listeners, we are going to link to The Last Animal on our bookshop.org affiliate page. I learned so much. I thought it was freaking fascinating, but it was also so funny 
and just delightful. Really just a way of combining all of these different elements. For those of you who loved lessons in chemistry, I think it's kind of a good cross-read there. And for those of you who are trying to convey a lot of information to your reader, this is kind of a textbook way of looking at how to do that. Ramona, thank you so, so much for, for joining us. And we wish you much success with this novel. As our listeners heard from your bio, there is so much to be impressed of with your writing. And I'm now going to go back and look at your short story collection. Oh, thanks, Bianca. Well, I wish you the best too. And all readers out there, listeners out there, keep going, keep experimenting and playing. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.